You guys are awake? Awesome. It's great to be back at Ascend Camp. Adam, thanks for the introduction. It's great to hear from Dale, and uh, you'll get to hear from Rick Holland tonight. Rick actually officiated my wedding, so I feel like I'm back with good friends. I'm back in an area of the country where I love to hang out with just normal people. You know, I live in L.A. No one's normal out there, but you guys are like normal people. You love the Lord. You like having a good time. You guys run around in the dark like crazy chasing ghosts. Yeah, so uh, it's good to be with you. Hey, I, I thought I would start off this morning telling you one of my most embarrassing moments as a pastor. How about it? One of my most embarrassing moments. So I was a youth pastor for about eight years in Houston, Texas, and there was this kid. Any Texans out here? We got some Texans. All right, so uh, there was this kid coming to our youth group who was, uh, I wasn't sure if he was a believer or not. He'd been coming for a few times, and then he called me one day and said, hey, look, can you come over to the house? My stepdad just died. And it felt awful just hearing, you know, the emotion in his voice. I ran over to the house. This family didn't go to church. I was trying to comfort them in the middle of his dad, his stepdad. He just died of a heart attack. And the wife looked at me, his mom, and said, hey, can you do the funeral? I've never done a funeral in my life. You know, so one, two years in as a youth pastor, I said, I'd love to do the funeral for you guys. It'd be my joy to serve you. And so I tried to, you know, put together a funeral message for a person I've never met, for an unbeliever. And uh, it was a little bit nerve-wracking. So the day of the funeral came, and I'd spent a long time trying to prepare a gospel message. And this guy who passed away, he was kind of like well-known in the community. He worked in the uh, operating room as a rep um, to, to provide surgeons with medical gear. So there's a lot of doctors out there. There was a lot of like high, uh, high people from the community there. And I'd get up to do the funeral, and I'm like, dearly beloved, We've gathered together today to honor the life of John. And I start kind of reading the obituary. You know, he left behind a wife and two kids, and, and John worked this kind of job, and, and John, you know, was born at this time, and, you know, when he passed away. And I, I was kind of like feeling like, okay, I'm kind of getting into the funeral motif of, of, of sharing about John. And then the wife sitting on the front row right here, and about halfway into that introduction, she stands up, and she said, his name was Ron. <laughs> I'm like, I've been calling him John. I'm like, John this, John that. I'm like, God bless John. <laughs> it's like, what do you do, man? You're at a funeral and you get the guy's name wrong. So hey, make sure that you learn people's names because it's important. It's important, right? Now, now whenever I do a funeral or even a wedding, my wife sits in the front row and she holds up the name of the couple. You know, here's, the, here's their name. Here's the name. Here's the name. Don't miss the name. So um, it, it, is, it, it can be a little bit embarrassing. Well, hey, this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about steadfastness in seeking and granting forgiveness. Being steadfast in seeking and granting forgiveness. And if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we'll be looking at verses 21 to 35. It's a fairly familiar passage, and so I'm just going to kind of read it as it unfolds as we get going. So let me just say a little prayer. We'll dive into our time together this morning. Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to be together at Ascend Camp. Thank you for the opportunity to hear great teaching about our steadfast, our sure and steady anchor in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the songs that we get to sing of, as acts of, of worship to you. And, and thank you for the opportunity to, to break after this session, to go to small groups and kind of talk through what we're learning, how we can live out what we're learning in everyday life. And so I pray as we look at this topic of forgiveness, the idea of being steadfast as we want to both seek and grant forgiveness as human beings, help this to be a session, a passage of scripture that would encourage us greatly. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, there's a hundred-year-old story about a father who was in Spain, and he became estranged with his Spanish son. They were big, they've been fighting, they've been arguing, father and a son, so the son ran away. And the father, this is like a hundred years ago before you had cell phones or GPS, so the father tries to find the son, and he can't find him anywhere. And so in a last-ditch effort, the father decides to put an ad in the Spanish newspaper, they were in Madrid, and so he puts this, this ad in the Madrid newspaper, and it said this. It said, Dear Paco, meet me here at this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. So Saturday rolls around. The father's going to be there at the office of the newspaper, hoping to meet his son, and lo and behold, at noon... 800 Pacos showed up seeking restoration with their dad. Now, part of that is a little bit funny. You're like, are you kidding me? Like 800 guys showed up? And part of that's really sad because it shows that there's a lot of families that have a lot of hurt where in that story, there's 800 young men showing up trying to find reconciliation and maybe even forgiveness from their dad. And the truth is we need forgiveness more then we need anything. And I want us to realize that our, our greatest need, actually as human beings, is to be forgiven and then to learn how to forgive others. Because all through this world, people are hurting and suffering from the sin of bitterness and anger, which often come from that root sin of unforgiveness. And if we don't have forgiveness from Christ, then we'll never be anchored We'll never be tethered in that storm or in the tornado like what we've been talking about because we're going to be pushed around by our feelings and by dissonance between us and another person. So our greatest need is really forgiveness. We need forgiveness more than we need anything. I mean, if our greatest need had been information, then God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, then God would have sent us a scientist if our greatest need had been money, then God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness. And so God sent us a savior. You need forgiveness more than you need anything. You need forgiveness more than a child needs his or her mom or dad. You need forgiveness more than a teenager needs a cell phone. I mean, how are you guys doing without your cell phone? Anybody going through withdrawal? You're doing all right this week? So you don't really need your cell phone, but you know what I mean. It's like, I got to have that phone. You, you need forgiveness more than the Kansas City Chiefs need Patrick Mahomes. I guess you know it. Without Mahomes, they got nothing. They got nothing. All right, maybe they got a good tight end as well. All right, but you know, you need forgiveness more than you need anything. I, I like to teach forgiveness in counseling and in premarital counseling. I like to tell young men and young women because they, you know, they come into my office for premarital counseling and they're in love. You know, and I'm like, well, how are you guys doing? They're like, oh, we're doing great. We just can't wait to the wedding. You know, and I work through like eight sessions and we get to this session about forgiveness and I ask them if they, you know, struggle with forgiveness and they typically say, oh, no. No, we don't struggle at all. And the girl's like, oh, I just love him so much. I don't think he'll ever do anything wrong. I'm like, oh, girl, you are in for a rude awakening. You're in for a rude awakening because the person that you love the most is sometimes the person that you sin the most against. 
And if you don't learn this principle of forgiveness from God's word, then you're going to really struggle to have a steady relationship, whether that's in marriage, whether that's with a sibling, whether that's with a parent. We need forgiveness more than we need anything. And so in marriage counseling, I typically spend a lot of time talking about forgiveness. And then on the day of the wedding, before we come out to do the wedding, I'm usually like coming out as the pastor and the, the, you know, the, 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 the groom is coming out behind me. And before we come out of those doors or from that side of the room, I look at him and I say, hey, look, I got one word for you. And if you listen to this one word and practice this one word and really think through this one word, I can guarantee you, you'll have a Christ-exalting marriage. But if you forget this one word, your marriage is going to be a wreck. You know, and it's just like right before the wedding. And he's kind of got the jitters and he's looking at me. And I said, do you want to know what the one word is? And he's like, yeah, what is it? And I'm like, it's forgiveness. Come on. And we walk out to the stage and, and, and we marry him off. Because I want the last thing that he's thinking about as he's standing up there at the altar, is I need to learn forgiveness more than anything in order for this marriage to really honor God. And the truth is, as Christians, we're really the only ones who have a perfect model of who we can follow, who, who forgave perfectly. And I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who in 1 Peter 2.21, it says, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he uttered no threats, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. That's the example of Jesus. He's our perfect model to look at when we think about forgiveness. So let me ask you this morning, how are you doing when it comes to forgiveness in your life? Because you guys have lived enough years now, you're 15 years old, you're 18 years old, and you've been hurt. There's been somebody who's hurt you in your life. It could be a parent, could be a step-parent, could be a sibling, could be somebody at school, could have been your best friend that stabbed you in the back. And you already know as a young man, as a young woman, that forgiveness can be really tough at times. So how are you doing in your life when it we come to this topic of forgiveness. Are you forgiving others freely as you've been forgiven? Because in order to be steadfast in a world of heartache and pain, you need to learn how to both seek forgiveness and how to grant forgiveness to others. So this morning, we're going to look at three headings dealing with forgiveness so that we can learn to forgive others based on the forgiveness that we have received from God. Here's number one. First major heading, let's talk about a question about forgiveness. A question about forgiveness. And we're going to take that question from our text. So we're in Matthew 18. And if you look at verse 21, it says here, Then Peter came up to him, that's to Jesus, and he said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, let me just make sure you're aware of the context here. Matthew is written to make sure that the Jews know that Jesus is king. And as the king, he wants the Israelites to know that Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. And in chapter 18 of Matthew, he's been talking about in verses 1 through 6, the fact that we need to have a childlike faith. In verses 7 through 9, he gives a warning about offenses. And then in verses 10 through 14, he gives the parable about the lost sheep. 
And then in verses 15 to 20, right before our text, he's just been talking about church discipline and the importance of disciplining someone out of the church if they're living in ongoing sin. And so with this kind of in Peter's mind, he then asked this question. And here's the question that he asked. He asked plainly, how many times should I forgive? I mean, Peter wants to know. Peter always says what we're all thinking, whether it's good or bad. But that's why we like Peter. That's why we appreciate him. He's like, all right, I get, I get the church discipline thing. I get the thing. There's lost sheep. But there's, I know there's a place also in the gospel for forgiveness. So he came up and he said, how many times? And believe it or not, some of the rabbis of the day were teaching that you only had to forgive three times. That was the going rate of the day, three times. You say, well, how in the world could that happen? I mean, well, what stupid rabbi would say you only have to forgive three times? Well, they took it out of the Old Testament, out of the book of Amos, where it says things like this. In Amos chapter 1, verse 3, it says, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So basically what he's saying, for three times I'll forgive, but on the fourth, I'm not going to hold back my judgment, but I'm going to bring it in full force. And in the book of Amos, it repeats that over and over again. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So for three times, I'll forgive these various areas around Israel. But on the fourth time they commit their offense, then I'm going to judge them with my full judgment. So some of the rabbis took that, that, that sentiment from the, 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 the minor prophet of, of Amos and said, well, maybe God only forgives three times because he warns that after the third time, it's on the fourth time that he brings his judgment. And so some of the, pro- the uh, rabbis were teaching, hey, you only have to forgive three times. So Peter's asking this question to the Lord Jesus Christ. How, what do you think about it, Jesus? How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then Peter suggests a different answer than three times. You see the end of verse 21. He says, as many as seven times. You kind of get the idea that Peter is kind of feeling pretty good about proposing something greater than three. He's like, hey, Lord, how many times we, should we forgive up to seven times, Lord? Like Peter might be expecting a little pat on the back from Jesus. boy, Peter. That's my boy, Peter. That's why you're the lead apostle. You're so gracious in how many times you would forgive. You know, Peter's going to take the going rate as three, and he's going to double it for six, and he's going to add one for good measure. He's like, up, up to seven times, Lord? And in the Bible, the, the, the number seven is also has the idea of completion. It has the idea of perfection. It's used in a lot of contexts where it has a connotation, the, the number seven. Up to seven times, Lord? If you look at verse 22, we see here, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, different translations translate that number differently. Many English, uh, English translations are going to say 70 times 7. There are some older ESV versions, and if you have an NIV version, it might say, it might say 77 times. So sometimes there's a little debate in translation philosophy. Well, which one is it? Is it 77 or is it 70 times 7? And if you go back and look at the original language in the Greek, it's just, it's just the word 70 right next to the number 70, right next to the number 7. So the question mark is, well, are we supposed to add or multiply? Because there's no, there's no arithmetic 
showing you, oh, this is supposed to be adding, which you would come up with 77 times, or no, no, actually, you're supposed to multiply 70 times 7, which equals what? I know you're out of school. What's 70 times 7? Oh, good. You guys still got it. You guys still got it. So the question is, what do you think the answer to the question is? Because when, when Jesus says 77, or if he said 70 times 7, is Jesus trying to teach there's a literal number, or is he giving us what we would call a divine hyperbole? Now, a divine hyperbole is a biblical exaggeration where Jesus is trying to make his point. So I don't think that Jesus is saying 77 and I don't think Jesus is saying 70 times 7 in a literal sense. You know, he, he's not saying like, hey, Peter, if we, if we go with the seven, uh, 70 times 7, which is 490, I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, you got to keep a tally up to 490. So that means you go 488, 489, 490. Now you're done. You can be done, Peter. You don't have to forgive ever again. I, I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching because forgiveness is not a matter of calculation. Forgiveness is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. And what Jesus is teaching is, Peter, you got to keep forgiving like forever. Like you don't ever stop forgiving. Like if your brother sins against you, you forgive him three times. You forgive him seven times. You forgive him 77 times. You forgive him 490 times. You never stop forgiving. And aren't you glad that's how God forgives us? I mean, how many of you in here have sinned 77 times or more? Right, how many of you guys have sinned more than 490? All right, all of us, right? I mean, we're like professional sinners. We're born into poverty. You, you sinned more than 490 by the time you were two years old. And yet Jesus says, hey, Peter, you got to keep forgiving. And you got to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And you never stop. It's like Jesus is saying, you take perfection and you multiply at times perfection with a zero and you get infinity. And that's how many times you should be forgiving. Now, part of us would be like, man, I love that. And part of us are going to say like, well, yeah, but what about this? What about abuse? And what about enablement? And what about if you're in a bad situation? And what, what do you just keep forgiving them over and over? Like, really? Isn't there going to be some kind of qualification to this? Well, Jesus then moves from verses 21 to 22 to verses 23 to 35, our second major heading. So we talked about a question about forgiveness. Now let's look at number two, a parable about forgiveness. A parable about forgiveness because Jesus wants to make sure we really understand this issue of forgiveness. So starting in verse 23, he gives a parable. And he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So this is a typical way that Jesus is going to introduce the parable. He's like, let me tell you about the kingdom of heaven. And in this context, the kingdom of heaven would be the sphere of salvation. The idea of what it's like to be a child of God. The idea of what it means to be a Christian. This is how we do things in God's house. This is how we do things in God's kingdom. This is how we operate. Let me give you this story. There's a king, and he's got servants. And so he continues with the parable in verse 24 and 25. He says, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. 
Verse 26, so that servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, this is, this is unbelievable. I mean, this first slave owes the king 10,000 talents. Now, one talent is 20 years of your annual salary. So one talent, 20 years of labor. So 10,000 talents, again, we're doing some math again, but 10,000 talents would be like, take 20 years of your annual labor, the sum of that, and multiply it by 10,000, and you get 200,000 years. So it would take you 200,000 years in order to earn 10,000 talents. And in today's currency, that equals about $8 billion. Now, who, who in here has eight bill? You've been hanging out with Elon Musk? You've been hanging out with Elon? All right, that's good. I got you. Bill Gates, right? Uh, Jeff Bezos. We know some of these big CEOs. They got eight bill. In fact, they got more than eight bill. But in the ancient world, this is not normal. And again, the idea is it's kind of like a hyperbole that for the normal person in 200,000 years, you're never going to earn $8 billion. I don't care if you work at Starbucks. I don't care if you work at Chick-fil-A. I don't care if you get a great job as being a doctor or a lawyer and you're making 100 k or 200 k a year. You're probably never going to see $8 billion. So the point that's being made here is that this first slave or servant owes a debt he could never pay. No matter how hard he worked, no matter what he did, he would never in a lifetime, because it's 200,000 years of his annual salary, be able to pay back this astronomical debt. Some people ask, well, how did this guy even get into that kind of debt? I mean, how do you get into that, that kind of debt? Well, you remember, it's a parable. So in parables, we don't force too much literalism to every detail of the story. It's usually one main truth that's trying to be taught, one main, it's a story with one main spiritual truth. Some people say, well, maybe he was like a, a governor over a certain region, and he'd been embezzling money over many years, and this is how he got into this 200,000 years or 10,000 talents. But that's, the point is, he owes a debt he could never pay. So what does he do? He throws himself at the mercy of the king, and he says, hey, man, don't, don't throw me in jail. Don't throw my wife in jail, my kids in jail, debtor's prison for his whole family. He's like, give, give me some time and I'll pay you what, whatever I, I'll pay you back. Is, is he ever going to be able to pay it back? Probably not. But at least we can see some desire to be noble, to give the effort to pay it back. And as the, as the first servant falls on his knees and begs for mercy, what does the king do? Look at it. What does, what does he do? He, he gives him forgiveness, right? It says in verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Can you imagine owing $8 billion and then all of a sudden your creditor says, you've been forgiven your debt. I mean, in life, you're going to assume some debts. You're going to have at some point some credit card debt. That's the worst kind. You're going to have school debt. That's more reasonable. It's an investment in a higher making you know, job. You're going to have a, a home loan, probably, which is also a reasonable debt to get a, to get a home. But, but, but can you imagine if you had a lot of debt, and all of a sudden you're living under the stress of that? How are we going to pay this back? And then all of a sudden, the creditor comes to you and says, all your debt's been forgiven. What would you do? 
you would rejoice. You'd be like, I can't believe it. I've been forgiven all of my debt. I mean, how many of you guys are enjoying the parable so far? Right? It's a good story. He's been forgiven 10,000 talents. He, he doesn't have to pay back the money. It's a great story. And then like most of the parables, there's a pivot. There's a hitch somewhere in the parable to now bring the climax of the problem. And the problem is what we find is going on with the second servant. The second servant, look at verse 28. But when the same servant, that's the first one, went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and he went and put him in the prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Let's just pause right there. I'm going to make sure you're getting the story. First slave owed $8 billion, 10,000 talents. He's been forgiven. He goes out and finds a second slave who owes how much? 100 denarii. How much is that? One denarii is one day's wage. There's lots of parables in there about they get the day laborer. You come work a day, you get paid this one denarii. You get paid this one denarii for one day's wage. So 100 denarii would be 100 days labor. And in a calendar of 365 years, it's about a third of your annual salary, about a third, you know, because it's 365 days, 100 days, counting weekends, holidays, whatever. We're going to say it's a third. Okay, let's, let's say you're making 60K, which is a pretty decent salary. If somebody graduates from high school and you're making 60K, my, my hat's off to you. You know, you're, you're, starting, you're starting well, my friend. You're starting well. So if you're making 60K, a third of that's 20K. So he owes him 20K. What do you think? Is that a lot of money? It is to me. <laughs> I don't have 20K in my pocket. I only have 20K in my bank account. I should by this stage of my life, but I don't have 20K. I got five kids, but I don't have 20K in my bank account right now. Maybe in my 401K. I don't even know what that number is because I'm scared to look at it because of the way the stock market's going. But, you know, so what I'm saying is he owes, like, it's still a lot of money. It's 20K. But is 20K a reasonable debt? Could you pay 20K back? Yeah, you could. It's a school loan. It's a car loan. If you've got a pretty, some pretty nice wheels and you, and, and you put down a down payment and you had to take out 20K, I don't recommend that for you guys, by the way, you know, unless you can really make the payment and, and have a, lot, a big down payment you put down. But if, if you had 20K, you, you take four or five years, you could pay that back. So this guy owes 20K, 100 denarii, and what happens to him? He throws himself at the mercy of the first uh, servant, and the first servant looks at him. He says, no, I'm not going to forgive you. Forget that. I'm going to throw you in jail. This is a horrible situation. He, gets, he throws him into jail so his friends hear about it. That's what verse 31 is about. When the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. There's some injustice being done. How can this guy not forgive this other guy when he's been forgiven so much. And so they go back to the master and tell him what has taken place. Look at verse 32. Then the master summoned him and he said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until all his debt should be paid back, until he should pay all his debt. So what's happening here? Well, first of all, let me just remind you, the parable is not about losing your salvation. So if somehow that's in, the, in your head, that's, that's not what the parable is about. Okay, the parable is about 
this guy who was forgiven much should learn to forgive this other guy. And because he didn't forgive this other guy, what we're learning is maybe this first slave doesn't really understand forgiveness. He doesn't understand that he's to pass on what's been given freely to him. He didn't earn his forgiveness, and he needs to learn to give it freely as he received freely. But let, me, let me make sure you're really getting the, the entire parable here. As a kid growing up, I heard this parable a hundred times. And somehow, when my preacher would preach a parable like this, particularly this one would always kind of just stick out to me because it's like, okay, what's going on here? What's happening? What's right? What's wrong? What should, be, what should be taking place? And I used to always place myself as the second slave. I would just always just immediately think, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, I would never take a debt like 10,000 talents, so I must be the second slave in the parable, and I don't know who the first, the first slave is, like really bad people. I'm, I'm the second slave, and then one day I'm reading the scripture and just praying, meditating, and it just dawned on me that you and I are the first slave, that each one of us here today have sinned against God a debt we could never pay, that our best works are but filthy rags, that we've sinned against God, and Romans 6.23 says, the wages of your sin is death. That's what you and I deserve. You and I are the first slave. And yet, when we came to God, when he drew us to himself, when he granted us repentance and faith, so we repented, we believed in him, guess what? He forgave us of all of our debt. Unbelievable story. That's the message of the gospel. The good news is, you don't have to suffer in hell that by faith in Christ, you can be forgiven of all of your sins from past, present, and future. Not that we want to walk in sin, but we know we still struggle, Romans 7. But the idea is we've been forgiven of it all. But we go out and live life. And as we live life, we find people who still sin against us. And it hurts. $20,000 worth of sin hurts. Like if you were to come borrow 20 grand from me, first of all, I would say, I don't have it. Second of all, I'd be like, man, we're signing papers to make sure I get paid back because I can't just lend you 20K. I'm saying it's a significant amount of debt. You know, it's not like you're giving five bucks to somebody. Hey, don't worry about it. Go enjoy your latte. You know, but if you're 20K debt, we're talking about significant. It's doable, but it's significant. So what's happening is the first slave that we think has been forgiven goes out and finds the second slave, and he's not willing to forgive him. So what happens is verse 35, 35 says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So he's making it abundantly clear. If you don't forgive others, you might not be forgiven. That's exactly what he's saying. Forgiven people forgive. You could write down if you want, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, which says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Remember that one in the Sermon on the Mount? He's like, if you've been forgiven, you forgive others. If you don't forgive others, maybe you've never been forgiven. You know, we have people all the time come in for counseling, teenagers, young adults, married people, and they say things like, oh, I could never forgive my spouse for this. I hear teenagers all the time say, I could never forgive my mom and dad for you fill in the blank. 
I could never forgive my sibling for what they did to me. And sometimes it's pretty bad stuff, right? We're talking about abuse. We're talking about some very bad sins. Sometimes it's just I got my feelings hurt. Either way, what are we supposed to do with that? And what we're supposed to do with that is, let me move to number three, as we kind of get to some practical application. Number three is a way to practice forgiveness, a way to practice forgiveness, because I want you to take this parable and apply it in your life and learn how to practice biblical forgiveness. And this is kind of what Dale and I do a lot with ACBC, doing counseling, teaching on counseling, is we talk a lot of times about how to practice forgiveness. I want you to remember three biblical rules for forgiveness, right? Three biblical rules for forgiveness. Number one, never bring it up again. Never bring it up again. We're talking about verse 35 again. So will my heavenly father do to you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. How do you know if you've really forgiven your brother from your heart? Because so often we say, oh, I forgive you, but then we bring it up again. So the first rule of biblical forgiveness is never bring it up again. Now, I'm talking about bringing it up in a derogatory, negative way in order to slander somebody if you've already really forgiven them. You know, we're talking about the principle. You can jot this principle down, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13, where it says, uh, verses 4 and 5, you know, where it says, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not arrogant or rude, is, does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. Uh, The NIV says, love keeps no record of wrongs. The NASB says, love does not keep an account. So we understand here that there's no resentment. If you've really forgiven somebody from your heart, then you don't hold it against them, and you don't keep bringing it up against them. And what happens in marriage, and what happens with siblings, and what happens to teenagers is they're like, they begin to build a grudge, and they begin to build a chasm. And they began to build a wall between them and somebody else. And they're saying, I can never forgive that person. And if you can't ever really forgive that person, then you're not following the biblical principle of forgiveness because love keeps no record of wrongs. Number two, never bring it up to others again. Never bring it up to others again. So we're saying, if you've really forgiven that person, never bring it up to them again. And then number two, never bring it up to others again. This would be the idea you know, never bringing it up to them would mean you keep throwing in their face sins of the past. Because if you've forgiven them, you're not going to keep throwing that in their face every time you get in another argument or another conflict. You're going to be like, hey, I forgave you. I got to move on. Not bringing it up to others again would mean not to gossip about it, not to slander about it. Like Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, forgiving one another. You know, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So the idea is if you've really been forgiven or if you've forgiven somebody, then when that person or someone else talks about them, you don't start talking about their, the bad blood that you have between you and them. You've forgiven them. So you're not going to bring it up to them directly. You're not going to bring it up to others in a gossipy, slanderous way where you're just like, oh, you won't believe what my brother did. You won't believe what my stepmom did, what my stepdad did, what my, what my mom, my aunt, my uncle, whatever, my friend. You won't believe what they did. We were best friends. We were like best friends. And then they did that. They posted this. They started dating my ex. You know, they started making fun of me. We were like friends. Look, I got five kids, 
And, and, and two of them, particularly the gender of female in my home, it's like drama all the time about friends and this, and they, this person posted that, and they posted that, and my girls will come home just crying at school, just crying it all out. I'm like, get it out, sweetie, get it out. It's okay, daddy's here for you, what happened? Well, she kicked the ball to her. That's my 10-year-old girl right now. She kicked the ball to her, and she doesn't play kickball with me anymore. You know, this is, this is life. This is what we start. So whether it's a small thing or a big thing, you got to learn about forgiveness. And the third aspect of forgiveness is this. Number three, never dwell on it again. Never dwell on it again. If, that's, if the first two aren't hard enough, right? Never bring it up to that person again in a negative derogatory way. Never bring it up to others again in a slanderous, gossipy way. And now we're talking about never dwell on it again, like Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, think about these things. Or Colossians 3.1, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, not the things that are below. So you've got to keep setting your mind on things above. Now look, in counseling or with my kids or between me and my wife, here's how we try to practice forgiveness. First of all, you don't have to write this down. It's giving you a little bit more application, and then we're done. And you can talk about this in small group as well as the other messages. But when, we're, when we've had conflict between one another, the first thing I got to do is realize I'm a 10,000-talent sinner because it's so easy to be like, you did that. You said that. You looked at me that way. You treated me that way. You hurt my feelings. And we point towards the other person. And that means we're starting to think of ourselves as the second servant. You got to, first of all, place yourself as the first servant. Be like, I'm a 10,000 talent sinner. I've sinned against God a debt I could never pay. And he forgave me. And because he forgave me, I can now learn to both seek and grant forgiveness to someone else. So the way we try to teach this or practice this would be when I sin against my wife, I need to learn to come to her, and instead of making excuses like, oh, honey, I'm sorry I said that, but I was really tired. I had a rough day at work, and the Dodgers lost again. So sorry I was really mean tonight. What is that called? That's like blame shifting, making excuses, not really owning it. What I should say is like, hey, honey, I need to ask you to forgive me. I've just been filled with pride. In fact, I was angry, and I spoke to you harshly. And that's on me. That, those are sins against God. Will you please forgive me? Which one do you think was a more clear confession? The first one or the second one? The second one. You know what most people do? They just shrug and be like, oh, I'm sorry. And the other person's like, ah, don't worry about it. And you're like, well, what just happened? Did they ask for forgiveness? Did they grant forgiveness? I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, ah, sorry. Don't worry about it. So we try to teach people to say, you know what? You need to ask clearly, hey, will you please forgive me? You can start off with, I'm sorry. Hey, I'm sorry that I hurt you. I'm sorry I spoke to you that way. I was angry. I was harsh. I was being selfish. Will you please forgive me? And in that moment, it's kind of like you're at the net playing tennis. I guess now it's all pickleball. Nobody does tennis anymore. It's all pickleball. But you're at the net and you like hit the ball over and you're like, boop. When you say, hey, will you forgive me? Now the ball's in their court. And the ball's over here, and the goal of tennis is a good volley. You know, I mean, it's no fun if you're just smashing it all the time. I mean, it's fun for some of you guys. But, you know, in a real tennis match, it's like, hit it back, hit it back. So if you say, hey, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I was angry at you. Will you forgive me? You hit a nice lob over the net, 
and it comes over to this side, and now this person has a responsibility. And they could either say, oh, don't worry about it. And that's kind of like dropping the racket and walking off the court, and the ball goes boink, 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 you know, rolls to the edge of the net. Well, that's, that's, not, that's lame. What you want to do is say, this person needs to say, you know what? I forgive you. And they hit the ball back. And this person's like, man, I'm so thankful you forgave me. I see Christ in that. And they hit the ball back. And they hit the ball back. And they can have a conversation. And they can come back together as friends or as a husband and wife. They can, have, they can be reunited in a healthy relationship. That's why forgiveness is so important. Because without seeking and granting forgiveness in these ways then you're going to be pushed around with envy, strife, discord, anger, bitterness. Forgiven people forgive. You both ask for it and you grant it. Now, our time is up, so I don't have time to talk about, but what if they don't ask for forgiveness? So just real quick, I would say, at least offer a spirit of forgiveness toward them. That's what Jesus did on the cross, right? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know what they do. So we could get into a whole lot of theological conversations about it, but at least have a spirit of forgiveness toward them because forgiven people forgive. And that's one of the best ways you can remain steadfast in your love for Christ and your love for others. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to just kind of look at a familiar topic, but be refreshed in our thinking from Scripture, from the conversation Peter had with Jesus and the parable on these two servants. And God, may we never forget that we are that first servant who owes you a debt that we could never pay. And may we never forget that life can still be challenging and difficult when others sin against us and teach us to forgive others from our heart. Lord, to truly forgive them, to, to never bring it up again and, and to not gossip and talk to others about it and to stop thinking about it. It's so hard. But through the grace that you show us through Christ, we're so thankful that you don't throw our sin back in our face and that when we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, you're faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that your mercies are new every morning. And so as we bask in the beauty of the gospel of forgiveness, I pray that we would be quick to both seek and grant forgiveness to others. Help us to apply these truths in our hearts and in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.